We're glad to be sharing the ministry of Tabernacle of Praise with you. Now join us as we receive the Word of God. Good morning. I have a little caveat I need to share with you. Uh, I probably spend at least eight, sometimes 12, 16 hours in study for every time I teach or preach. Uh, and I usually know that I have the mind of God during the week when, as I go along, it keeps getting refreshed and God add things, add things, add things, and I get to the pace in the week where I have to start, all right, I need to call this out, I need to call that out because, you know, we're not going to be here three hours. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're conflicted like that, uh, You know, sometimes later in the week you'll get some other impression for God. You'll start studying that out, and then you don't know what to preach or what to teach. And uh, I've had discussions with God sometimes about what I needed to preach. And he seemed to be impressing me one way, but I thought the other was best like I know more than God knows. And anybody who's preached more than three or four times have had this issue. And uh, I thought I exhausted the subject, at least in principle, on discipline. But uh, this week it's just kind of lived again. And so I want to revisit the subject on the discipline of Christian living. In First Peter chapter 2, Verse 11 and 12, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers. The word there is parkos, which means alien resident, and pilgrims, paradepamos, which is an alien. So strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation... The word conversation means the manner of life, your behavior. Honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of salvation. So the strangers and pilgrims that are referenced here by Peter relate to outsiders. I think we understand as Christians that we're supposed to live as outsiders in the world that we live in. Uh, we're to live as an alien, as a non-native. I know that there was a definite shift in my life that October night, 1970, when suddenly... Uh, my loyalties and my allegiances changed in a radical way. And there's something about when you're not accepted in some group that you participate in, I noticed that once I got in the church that I faced a closer scrutiny from those that I worked with and I had prior to that. And I recognized that I was being evaluated by them through the prejudices that they held about Christianity and about the church. And, uh, but I made a choice and I made a decision. Uh, I was working for the Air Defense Command at the time, I maintained the computer that monitored the air defense of all the Western United States, Alaska, and the Canadian Dew Line. 
And uh, so the commanding general of the Air Defense Command sent his private jet to Phoenix, picked me up, flew me up. Uh, I was a guest of honor at a Air Force Academy football game. And uh, Air Defense Headquarters was in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, where the Air Force Academy is. And they had a big dining in, which is a big officer's ball and party and dance and all that. And uh, uh, in my honor, trying to get me to stay with IBM and continue to maintain the computer. And, of course, I explained to him that I had felt this call to ministry. And, uh, you know, he said there's a thousand guys that can go into ministry, but, you know, we think you're the only guy that can do what you're doing. And I said, no, there's nobody irreplaceable, and I am replaceable. And I've seen the Air Force has existed a good 50 years without me. Uh, and air defense has existed that long without me. But you understand that you're you're viewed by different by differently by those who don't ascribe to any particular faith. The writer of Hebrews said, "By faith he sojourned in a land of promises in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob." the heirs with him of the same promise. We have no record in Scripture where Abraham ever built a permanent dwelling place in the land that God had gave him. He was the inheritance of the inheritor of the land of Canaan, but he lived in a tent all of his life. And a tent is something that's easily movable, uh, you know, my wife, almost every year since we've lived in America, has traveled back to Poland, and she has a group of friends that she's known since childhood. And they kayak and camp together for anywhere from four to days to a week. And they all sleep in tents because they're easily broken down, put back up, broken down, put back up. So... Abraham, in his inheritance, lived as a pilgrim and a stranger all of his life, as did Isaac and as did Jacob, as heirs to the promise. And we find that, by and large, Israel lived this way until Saul was anointed king and then David was anointed king. And then it seemed they began to build permanent residences and uh, there was a group of people in Israel called Rechabites who were the children of Jonadab that never lived in cities. They never lived in a permanent dwelling, but they were dwellers in tents. They were keepers of sheep. Uh, they didn't drink wine. They didn't plant crops. They were Bedouins. They were shepherds because it, they could easily move there's no record. God had Jeremiah, the prophet, call some descendants of the Rechabites and laid a bowl of wine in front of them and asked them to drink it. And they said, oh, no, no, sir. Our father, Jonadab, made a covenant with God. Now, none of the things that they covenanted with God was a sin. It wasn't a sin to live in a city. It wasn't a sin to plant crops. It wasn't a sin to drink wine. But they didn't do it. And uh, one of the things you find out, the reason that God had Jeremiah bring them in is because any time a foreign power invaded Israel, they could just pull up their tents and move out of the way. None of their woman, women were ever raped or molested. None of their men were ever made eunuchs in a foreign government. They were protected by the consecrations they made to God. And uh, it seems strange that someone would live like a stranger on the very land that was their inheritance. It seems unusual. The word sojourned in the book of Hebrews is the same word as strangers in 1 Peter. It identifies an outsider. 
And the writer of Hebrew writes concerning the Old Testament prophets. He said in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Not having received the promises, literally not accepting or refused. They never lived as citizens. The Old Testament patriarchs, which are considered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, never lived as as citizens in the land. It wasn't until Joshua led Israel into Canaan that they began to live as citizens. Uh, They drove all the other tribes out of their land, or they were supposed to. They coveted Moses that they would, but you get into the beginning of the pages of the book of uh, the judges after Joshua died, and they said they did not drive, Judah did not drive out the inhabitants of the Jebusites, and Ishmael did not drive out those, and and Nephilim didn't drive out those. They were all talk and no walk. But the patriarchs admitted that they were outsiders on the earth. They didn't live or adopt the customs and the practices and the norms of the citizens in the country that they lived in. I think as parents and grandparents, we're not so much concerned about how things affect us. Uh, We want our children to fill in and be accepted and to be able to relate and the the world relate to them and them not feel like they are uh, some alien or second-rate citizen. I really don't think it, I hope, I pray, at this point in my life that I could be intimidated by anybody or in any situation that opposed my values. I I don't think that I'm comfortable with who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm settled in that. I know what I believe. I believe what I know. And, but I've always had this concern about my children and my grandchildren. Kids can be extremely cruel, as all of us know. Uh, and some of the cruelest people on the planet are girls, adolescent girls. They're, I mean, they're just vicious. Uh, they can ostracize a girl because there's something about her that the one head of the clique doesn't like, and they can kind of put her down, and the whole group just makes her uh, like damaged goods. And one of the sad things about pastoring is that you minister sometime to you realize damaged kids who are being devastated by their peers. And sometimes they carry the scars of that into their adulthood. And I don't know that we as Christians properly educate our children to help them understand they're not like the world, that they are different, and that it is fine, it is great that they are different, that they are unique, and the value of something is always increased by the uniqueness of it. There are pennies that are worth tens of millions of dollars because in 1943, I think it was, they only manufactured so very few of them. And then they went to zinc. Uh, And sometimes we can create confusion in our children with how we act. Uh, there's an episode on Andy Griffin that kind of best illustrates this story. It's a story 
that in Mayberry they they discover this old cannon. And so Andy and Barney are tasked with selling this cannon. And so they publish it, and they have some antique dealer come in to town to look at the cannon. And so Andy and Barney kind of embellish that probably this cannon was used in the Civil War and probably was used even in a battle of the Civil War that occurred around Mayberry someplace. And so they got a real good price for this cannon uh, for the time that it was done. And in the situation of that, I think they got a couple hundred bucks for it, which was an exorbitant amount of money for this old cannon. So a few days later, Opie has this broken-down bicycle, and he has a friend who has a new pair of skates. And so Opie really embellishes how good this bicycle is to this friend and trades him this broken-down bicycle for these good roller skates. And he comes in, and he tells his dad how proud of himself that he is that he made this swap with this kid. So that night in the bedroom, they have this bedside chat, and Andy talks to Opie about integrity, about how he shouldn't embellish things to make somebody think they're getting something they're not getting. And Opie is confused because he said, Dad, isn't that what you and Barney did to that dealer? Children don't process subtleties very well. In their world, everything is pretty much black and white. The gray distortion that we adults can traffic in isn't all that clear to them. And one of the things that I grew up in a culture where just about everybody you knew had character and operated on character principles. But in America, we don't operate on character to any great degree anymore. I remember the first automobile I ever purchased. Uh, I bought it on the telephone with a bank 2,000 miles away. And I had come to know the bank president. And so he told me, you write the check. We'll cash the check. As soon as the title comes back being transferred, you send it to us, and we'll take, take it from there. I wonder what chance I'd have of buying a car like that again today. I don't think that there's any bank that would... Uh, treat me in that that kind of manner. There's no greater standard that we can give to our children than to act in integrity and and to deal with, with character. And to witness the degree of estrangement that Abraham and his family had with Canaan is is unique. He said in the 23rd chapter of Genesis, I am a stranger and sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, he's talking, he's in his inheritance. But he's asking them to sell him a plot of land so he can have a place in this context to bury Sarah. And the prince of the place where they were said, no, we're going to give it to you, man. You've been a blessing to us. We want to give it to you. And Abraham said, no, I don't want you to give it to me. I want to buy it. I want a deed to it. Because there's going to come a generation that don't know you and don't know me. And they're not going to know about your willingness or giving this to me. I want the title deed to it. Because he knew he was an outsider. And once the person who gave him the plot of ground died, then it was subject to be taken over. Other than the threshing floor of Onan, we have 
no other incidents in Scripture where there's any record of a land purchase in Scripture. When David bought the threshing floor of Onan, he bought it on Mount Moriah where he was going to build the temple. Abraham was acknowledging that he was an outsider. The only roots he put down in all of Canaan was a place to bury his dead. Sarah was buried there. Isaac, Rebekah was buried there. Abraham was buried there. Jacob, Leah, and Rachel was buried there. David was buried there. Joseph was buried there in the field of Machpelah that Abraham had bought. I'm not talking about property rights. I want to be clear. I don't want to say things that make any of you think that you need to quit your jobs and hang out here at the church and do spiritual things with your, your life. There's a ministry called for that. And I'm not talking about that you shouldn't care about the provision for your family and their future. This is more about an attitude that we need to have as Christians. It's more about a mindset, a worldview. There are three Greek words for pilgrim in Scripture. And the word that Peter and the writer of Hebrews wrote, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Many think Paul wrote it. I lean toward Barnabas because Barnabas was out of the priesthood. And whoever wrote the book of Hebrews had to have an innate, deep knowledge and understanding of the Aaronic priesthood. But the word that he used, per ed epidemos, means away from your own people. It means an alien. Uh, There's a vast difference between how Ivana views living in America and how our boys view living in America. The boys are comfortable here. Uh, They enjoy their visits to Poland, but they have adapted here. They, they, They understand that they, most of their childhood they spent here, grew up here, they show a preference to here over Poland. It's, it's something that Ivana loves America and all the opportunities that it's afforded her and her children. But I can tell you she's a different person when she's in Poland. She's more poised. She's more comfortable. Uh, she seems to blossom when she's there because it's it's it, it's native to her it's it's familiar to her on the other hand i love poland i enjoy visiting there but i can tell you that i'm not entirely comfortable there i can navigate i can get around i read polish much better than i speak it uh I'm self-sufficient there, but I'm never quite at ease because there's so many nuances to a culture that you just about have to grow up there to really understand and, and to know. And I think that as a Christian that we should have somewhat of that same tone in our life about the world that we live in. That we're sufficient, we can function, but we're never quite comfortable. We never feel like we really fit. Like they have this value and appreciation for our our values and our moral concepts. 
I'm an American. I love America. But this isn't my home. This is not my first allegiance. Since October 1970, it doesn't feel like home. People who have a worldview that denies God are not my people. The people that can live by the standards and the values that most Americans live, I don't get it. I can't accept it. I, I can't, you know, I, I, I just can't. Uh, you know, I appreciate being married to a woman who watches a program and says, I don't get this. I don't get it either. I was born here, raised here, grew up here. I've watched this transition in my childhood. We have gone from a solid, charactered society to a society that has no values and no norms anymore. I don't understand it. Uh, I have a higher allegiance to this church than I do to this country. I have a higher allegiance and a greater affection for you than I do for most of the members of my own family because they don't acknowledge God. They don't live for God. I've chosen to place all of my efforts and energies and values in the kingdom of God. I don't waste my time in politics. It's not worth my time and my effort. I vote. I vote every election. But that's, that's the extent of my involvement. I think most of you have heard the term the ugly American. There's a perception by many in the European countries and in many Asian countries that Americans are rude, egotistical, and demanding. Uh, you know, I had to adapt when I went to Poland because, you know, when we go into a store, we expect to be served. You go into a store in Poland, and you're interrupting them. Uh, you go to a government agency, and you have to walk in very meek and, you know, very deferential, or else they'll blow you off. The American accent is unmistakable. You don't have to be from New York or Boston or from the South. The American accent in English is very recognizable. I'm very aware when I travel overseas that I am constantly being measured by that culture and that society. And that every action that you take is read and evaluated through the presupposition that they have about how an American is. Peter said, I beseech ye. Beseech means to call near. I want you, I want you to understand this. When you have something to communicate, something of gravity, you want undivided attention. Sometimes God desires to call us away from the noise of life to speak something of gravity to us. Abstain from youthful lust which war against the soul. You have to understand your flesh, my flesh, is a Trojan horse. Our carnal nature will sneak enemies into our lives that will destroy us. The one thing that I have to guard as a preacher is that because I live this way, 
I can accept a little of, you know, to kind of balance me out. I've never met a person that wasn't a hypocrite, present company included, and that includes me. There's things in every one of our lives we're inconsistent about. Jesus said, the prince of this world cometh and findeth nothing in me. I've never been able to say that. Can you? If you think you can, you're a fool. You can't say that. Our carnal nature will sneak enemies into our lives that will destroy us. It's one thing to be attacked from the outside. It's quite another to remove the defenses to your own spiritual life and allow Satan to have open access to your heart. This is a dangerous world we live in. Living for this, for God in this present culture and situation is like trying to swim toward the shore in the ocean when the tide is going out. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, but it, you're not going to make it. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. The beach was part of our summer day. Every year, there were dozens of people drowned at Jacksonville Beach. You could go out 500 yards and find a place where you could stand in knee-deep water where a sandbar had been built up by the ebb and flow of the tide. The reason people drown at the beach is that these sandbars are created hundreds of yards from shore. They're playing, they're inattentive, they get out there and they realize how far they are and they try to swim back. And inevitably, they try to swim back where there is an undercurrent, undertow, and it's where there's a break in the sandbar. And the water rushes up toward the shore, and when it comes back, it hits that sandbar and it's blocked. So it flows, it finds that break in the sandbar, and the current there is three or four or five, ten times stronger than it is just in the tide going out. And they try to swim against that. They get fatigued, and finally they drown. Being a Christian in America is like trying to swim against the undertow in a sandbar. This world around us is constantly pulling at our human natures. I'm going to tell you, in the last two decades, I have had to fight carnal issues like I have never had to fight them as a Christian. I'm just being honest. The world around us is always constantly pulling at our human natures. The statement made about Job in the first chapter is that he eschewed evil. That meant he abstained from it. He rebelled against it. He withdrew from it. Job didn't fall because he kept the enemy outside of him. That's why David said, you know, David thought he knew his own heart till Bathsheba walked on that wall. Then from then he prayed, God, you try me. You know me. Search me and see if you can find any wicked way in me. I find that in this America I live in, I need God to investigate my heart daily. I need for him to look at me daily to see if I've allowed some Trojan horse into my life. I became enamored with Aesop's fables in college. There's one of his fables that has stuck with me. It's about Aesop traveling down a pathway, 
it's on a very cold winter day, and he finds this snake frozen on the pathway. So he picks up the snake, and he puts it inside of his coat on the inside up against his skin. He goes into the house, and he sits down by the hearth of the warm fire. He begins to rock in his chair. Pretty soon he feels that snake warming up, and he begins to move around. And then the snake bites him. He reaches in the bosom. He pulls out the snake. And he asks, why? Why did you bite me? I picked you up off of that cold path. You were frozen. You were going to die. I put you in my bosom. I brought you in and warmed you. Why did you bite me? And the snake answers, you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. We must be aware of the snakes in our world. I'm not advocating paranoia. I'm just saying that we need to be a little more cautious than we are. You need to be like a trophy buck during hunt season. It seems like they know when hunting season starts because they get very, very, very timid about their movement and about their activity. Because a good hunter will study the habits of that deer. He will know at the times that he feeds. He knows what he's feeding on, where he drinks, where he beds down. A good hunter will study a deer over several hunting seasons. If he wants that trophy buck, he has to study his habits until he knows that buck as well as that buck knows that buck. And only then can he bring him down. I'm here to tell you, Satan is a trophy hunter. He's a trophy hunter. He studies you intimately he knows where every weakness he knows your weaknesses as well as god knows your weaknesses he studies you as an individual because if he can bring you down he understands what a trophy that is Sorry, I lost my place. Paul names snakes that live in our nature in Galatians 5. They don't encompass all of them, but in the interest of time, that's all I'll try to cover today. He talks about adultery, fornication, uncleanness is homosexual activity, lasciviousness is an unbridled appetite for anything. Have you noticed that there has been this huge transition in America? I mean, there's been baseball since almost America was a country. Football is a little more modern, but it still dates back into the at least the early 40s, maybe the late 30s. How obsessed Hollywood has been there since the 19-teens, but never has it imposed the social mores on our culture like it does today. There has been music from the founding of our nation, but the music industry rules the world that we live in, rules it. They set the moral standards. They set the language barriers for our culture. 
and it's unbridled. It's unbridled. I don't care how good he can throw a football. Dak Prescott is not worth 40-something million a year. There's no pro athlete worth what he gets paid. There's a whole lot of people who serve our culture and our society far, far outweighs any contribution, any Hollywood, any musician, any singer, any pro football or, or pro athlete plays in our culture. You could shut down that industry tomorrow and it wouldn't have matter a hill of beans. Idolatry. That's anything that takes the place of God in your life. If you want to know who your God is, just let you have some trouble and see what you turn to. That's your God. That's your God. Witchcraft. <laughs> Man, it is so in your face in America. Opening one's life to the occult is one of the most foolish things that you can do. And people are practicing the occult without even knowing it. Anytime you rebel against authority, you're involved in witchcraft. When you rebel against authority, what you're saying is that what Satan said to God, he didn't try to throw God off his throne. He didn't try to take the place of God. He said, I will be like unto the Most High God. When you make yourself equal to the Word of God and equal to God, you are in a cult because you are getting out from underneath your covering. Authority is like an umbrella over you. And as long as you stay under the umbrella of God's authority, Satan cannot get to you. Hatred. Although Alan Oggs never named it, this is the sin that wears the golden crown. I have to be careful what I love, but I also have to be careful with what I hate. I like ice cream. I don't love it. I like my home. I don't love it. I like my automobile. I don't love it. There's only three things in this world worthy of love. God's worthy of love. Truth is worthy of love. And people are worthy of love. No matter who they are, how soiled, how broken, how far away from God they are, they deserve love. That's the only three things that we should love. You need to be careful about your loves. And my, my hatred must be confined to certain things. I'm not allowed to hate people. I'm not allowed to hate anybody. I can hate sin. I can hate iniquity. I can hate transgression. I can hate false ways. I can hate Satan and his kingdom. And that's it. That's it. Every Christian who professes to be a Christian that hates any other human being, regardless of the reason, is not a Christian. You can't hate. Variance. This is being contentious and quarrelsome. The devil doesn't need another advocate. It means to be generally disagreeable. Emulations, that's keeping up with the Joneses. Man, that's in spades in America. Wrath, unrestrained anger, 
of things that I should love. Strife is having factions, politics, racial bigotry, at war with things that I should seek to be at peace with. Seditions, that's division of any kind. Heresies, teaching contrary to the Word of God. I don't have time to cover these because of time. Study them. Know what they are. Drunkenness and revelings. That's excessive drinking, parting to success. And Peter says they war against the soul. They war against the soul. There's two words for war in the New Testament. One of them is translated battle, which means a brief skirmish. The other one identifies a well-equipped army holding a city under siege, willing to take the time, whatever time it takes, to destroy the city. This is the word that Peter chose to use in his epistle. The issues of our human nature are not harmless quirks. They are like a mighty army that is besieging our lives and we're unaware of it. No world power from the past has ever successfully been brought down by strictly an outside force. Unless first that culture deteriorated and weakened from within. It happened to Babylon. It happened to Egypt. It happened to Greece. It happened to Rome. And it's going to happen to America. When a Christian is taken down in a squirmish, they usually live to fight another day. But a Christian who has been taken down by a siege rarely recover over time because the soul's foundation have been undermined. And your character piece by piece, brick by brick, over a long period of time can be torn down and you don't even know it. I close with Paul's letter to Timothy. This charge I committed to thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare. Every Christian should have a both offensive and defensive strategy to their life. If you read carefully the epistles of Paul, you will see that he had an offensive strategy and a defensive strategy for his life. You must have a good offense and a good defense. This isn't just a battle. This is a lifetime engagement. And the most determined will will win. Jesus gave different altar calls than we're used to in the modern Christian church. Jesus would, wait a minute, before you, before you start to build this tower, you need to sit down and count the cost. But before you try to take this city, you need to sit down and count the cost. Before you come and follow me, you need to completely sell out to that world and invest in mine. He gave strange altar calls. Therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth, that is the same word as strategic, to execute as a disciple, entangleth, entwines himself with the affairs of this life, 
that he may please him who hath chose him as a soldier. When you enlist in the military, you understand you can't live where you want to live. You live where you're told to live. The freedom of choice you once enjoyed, you don't enjoy anymore. As a Christian, we have to subordinate all of our wishes and desires and dreams to him. I kind of look at serving in the kingdom like this. I'm God's nickel. I've given myself to God. And he can spend me any way he wants to. Sometimes in calamity and in heartache, I've asked God why. To which he's replied, what are you complaining for? You told me I could do this. You gave me permission. Were you not serious? Sometimes we forget the commitments that we've made to God. And if he puts us in a difficult place, we have to understand that his glory is magnified in our weakness. Amen. I know this is heavy. I don't, I don't want to give, the, again, the idea that you got to do everything for God and everything for the church. He understands, but you just have to keep your priorities clear. Amen. Lord bless you. Let's take a break. For more information about Tabernacle of Praise, look us up online at tabernaclepraise.org. We want to hear from you, so be sure to connect with our Facebook page. We also have a free app that you can use to keep up with events or be notified of bad weather. And you can listen to our sermons directly from the app. Thank you for listening, and have a blessed day.